0: We're so grateful for God's Word to us, all that it is, all that it means. Let's take a moment to pray as we approach the Scriptures this morning. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your providence in our lives. We're grateful for the breath here in our lungs uh, today. And we pray, Lord, that we would be Psalm 1 men and women, Psalm 1 children planted by the streams of living water, your streams, Father, not, not tossed here and there by the winds of culture, by the, by the moors of this world and its values, God, but we pray that you'd give us new hearts, new minds, that you'd grow us up into the image and likeness of Jesus, your Son, that we would bear much fruit. For him, God, we don't want to be chaff. We want to be, uh, we want to be anchored in your love, and your goodness, and we pray this morning that you just draw us deeper into your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 30 is where we'll be picking it up this morning. And the biblical principle that we're about to see on display can be boiled down to three simple words. So as you're flipping to Hebrews chapter 11, let me invite you to say these three words after me. Obedience before understanding. Okay, you're getting the cobwebs off. Let's try it one more time. Obedience before understanding. We are going to see that principle lived out, aired out through this scripture, Hebrews 11, verse 30. You know, there are times when the sovereign God of heaven and earth asks us to follow him. He asks us to follow him even when we don't understand. He asks us to follow him even if the path forward is not always clear. He asks us to follow him even when it doesn't make sense. To borrow words from Scripture, from the Proverbs, we learn that we are to trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not, I love that image, don't lean upon your own understanding, upon your own faculties, upon your own wit. In all our ways, we're to acknowledge Him, acknowledge God, and He will make our paths straight. Friends, today we're going to be looking at debris and deliverance. I promise not to make any cheesy jokes like Benjamin was doing about brie. Debris and deliverance. We're looking at the rubble of Jericho and the redemption of a prostitute named Rahab. So here we are. Hebrews 11 verse 30. Let's read this simple statement together. From God the Spirit directed to us His people. By faith, the author of Hebrews writes, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after that they had been encircled for seven days. You see, the people of Israel are finally poised to enter the promised land. You remember the land flowing with milk and honey promised to them by their good and gracious God. He not only... Uh, performed the greatest jailbreak in all of history, freeing his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but he had in mind a place for them, a place for them uh, to to worship him, to serve him with their whole hearts, this land flowing of milk and honey, and yet the first thing God's people encounter as they're dangling their toes on the edge of the promised land after they'd crossed the Jordan River was the imposing city of Jericho. Built around an oasis in a very dry land, Jericho was both rich and strong. Sometimes in Scripture, it's even referred to as the city of the palms or the city of the palm trees. That's Jericho. It's one of the oldest inhabited cities on the planet. And you've got to understand that Jericho is not just any old city. Jericho is built to be a frontier fortress city. It's specifically designed on the edge of the land of Canaan to withstand enemy attack. Its walls are thick and high and heavily fortified. This is an impregnable fortress. In fact, this this actually is why the Israelites had turned back from the promised land, if you remember, 40 years before they actually entered the promised land, they were standing at the same place, and they sent out some scouts, some spies to scope out the land, and they came back trembling because they saw cities like Jericho. And they said, oh, no, there ain't no way we can, we can hold a flame to the military might of fortresses like these. So so this Jericho is the first thing God's people encounter in the promised land, a massive obstacle. And God proceeds to outline His plan for His people. Let's read together from Joshua, where where this account really unfolds. Joshua chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there. I'm going to be reading the first five verses of Joshua 6, the account of God's people and what they're to do. This is God's plan as they reach Jericho. Joshua 6, beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside, because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given, past tense, and in God's mind it's already happened, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do... For six days, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. That's the ark of the covenant. God's uh, presence physically manifest with his people. On the seventh day, God continues, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Literally, under itself. That's the Hebrew. The, the wall of the city will crumble, will fall down underneath itself, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before Him. Now, I think you got to admit, if you're being rational, logical here this morning, that, that this is... This is not the way cities are typically conquered. Would you agree? God tells them, listen, I want you to march around this city, this impregnable military fortress, one time for six days. Seven priests in front, carrying ram's horns, blowing out a war cry, essentially, before the Ark of the Covenant, blowing continuously, but nobody is to speak a word. Do that for a week. Only on the last day, on on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city. Imagine this, seven times. Seven, the number of completion. Do it the same way. Only at the end, I want the priests to make a loud blast on the trumpet. And when the people hear that loud trumpet blast, they're all going to shout. I want you to shout at the top of your lungs. And as a result of that sound... The walls of the city will fall down beneath themselves, fall down flat. So let's step outside the hypothetical for a moment and just imagine, if you can, that you're one of those Israelites, gentlemen, that you're one of the the men parading around the city for, for a week. I mean, this is Jericho. You can't take Jericho as it is, and you're going to march and blow some trumpets, and then at the end, you're going to shout, and that'll do it, says God. Yeah, can can you imagine that any of those Israelites were tempted to balk a bit at God's plan? I mean, come on, Joshua, this is serious business. Are you kidding me? We're going to do what? Joshua, you know, I've been been doing some research in ancient military technology. Have you ever heard of a catapult? That's typically what's used to take down strong walls. How about a battering ram? I mean, come on, man. This is war. This is life or death. You want us to to march and shout? What's the point? Well, the, the point is this. The taking of mighty Jericho was a striking example, and God designed it to be at the outset of national Israel as they're, as they're working their way into the place that God has provided. God is teaching them to trust in Him with all their hearts and to lean not on their own understanding. This made no sense. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. This is a suicide mission, if God's not behind it. A striking example of faith that God is calling his people to obedience before understanding. Obedience before they see the final picture. You know, I've got a got an example for you, and it's uh, it's an example for my my personal life. I I don't know uh, what your personal theology of the Sabbath is, a day of rest that God has provided for his people. Lord willing, we'll have an opportunity to talk a lot more about that in the days ahead, but I remember as a young teenage boy growing up in a farm family, uh, 250 acres, we did a lot of work, and uh, we sold vegetables, sweet corn, and peppers, and cucumbers, and you name it, we sold it at, at our roadside stand in upstate New York as people were vacationing into the Adirondack Mountains. They would, they would come by this county route that split our farm in two, uh, and, and they, would, they would stop by and get Thomas's uh, famous sweet corn. Maybe we will bring some back. It won't be super fresh, uh, but on one of my trips back from New York, it's, it's fantastic. Anyway, um, my family was doing what what many of you are familiar with around here, trying to make a small farm work uh, in a a big farm world. And it was just hard financially. My dad had another nine to five. His passion has always been the farm, but he he needed another job just just to make things work, right? And and, and so uh, usually uh, when we would sell in the summer months, our biggest grossing days of the summer would be Friday, When people were going out on vacation, going out for the weekend up into the Outer Antics, and then Saturday, right, just a day everybody's off, and especially Sunday when they're coming back for the week, they'd swing by, grab some sweet corn. It was one of our biggest uh, financial days of the week. My father, after years of running ragged on Sunday morning, running to church and then sprinting out of breath after church to, uh, to go pick truckloads of corn and make things work, I mean, it was just so stressful. We were just uh, running ragged, and my dad said, enough. He had been praying about this for a long time and really been feeling convicted to really honor God on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, to give God our worship, our time, to honor Him with our rest. In our refreshment, only the the tension, I'm sure you can imagine, we were barely making it financially, making ends meet for the farm, as is, how do you take away one of your biggest financial days and make it? Well, I watched as a young man as my parents made the courageous decision to say, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to honor the Lord, we're going to honor what He's called us to do. We've been a, a bit out of alignment Serving him, worshiping him on, on our Sundays, and, and we're going we're gonna to do this, uh, and without any guarantee of what was going to happen. God, God didn't have to do this. Please hear me. God didn't have to do this, but we watched miraculously as the year we took away Sundays and began to focus on rest and refreshment and spending time with the Lord, spending time with our family together, not only were we more refreshed, but that year, we made record profits on the farm. Now tell me how that works. You take away one of your biggest days financially and and you blow every other year out of the water. That was the blessing of God. Obedience before understanding. That's what I'm just trying to share with you. Maybe you've got personal examples from your life as well. Sometimes God calls us to trust Him before we see around the bend. This is the example that we are given. Crystal clearly in Jericho. Now, apart from the work of God, obviously shouting at a, at a fortress, shouting at, at a, these, these high, strong walls was nothing less than absurd, and everyone knew it. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said it this way, the sounding of trumpets, though one were to sound for a thousand years, cannot throw down walls, but faith can do all things. A lot of wisdom coming from the 4th century. This is Psalm 20, verse 7, in action. Where the psalmist tells God's people, some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some, some people trust in the, in the practical things that the world puts their confidence in to get ahead. But not us. We trust in the name of Yahweh. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's Jericho, isn't it? I want you to notice, however, before all this goes down, notice what Joshua says. If you're, if you're in Joshua 6, look, look ahead to verses 15 and 17. This is like at the climax of the battle. Joshua's given the orders. It's about to go down. Joshua 6, verses 15 to 17. On the seventh day... They rose early at the dawn of day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, here it is, here it's coming. What's Joshua going to tell them in the moment where all of this is supposed to culminate? He says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Look at that confidence and the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But he keeps going. But there's one exception. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Again, it's go time. And the walls are looming before them, these walls which are about to become dust and debris. And yet Joshua, before this happens, right before it happens, takes care to make a special note about this woman, about this prostitute named Rahab. And that's precisely where our text picks back up in, in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11:31. 11, as we continue to comb our way through this Hall of Faith, we read about the faith of Rahab. Hebrews 11:31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So, we started at the height of the action here in Hebrews 11. When the walls of mighty Jericho become rubble. And now, here in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, it's as if Scripture rewinds for us. It takes us back before the fall of Jericho's walls to highlight a category-breaking story of an immoral woman who becomes a radiant example of what true faith looks like. Joshua chapter 2. Again, we're doing some flipping today, but I want you to hear, rather than my explanation of what happened, I want you to hear holy inspired scripture detail this amazing account in Joshua chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, lands up, foil is up, whatever their expression is. Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Truth or a lie? Yeah. Verse 5. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, Rahab continues, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came, Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, she's using Lord in all caps. What's that name? That's the name. That's the covenant name for God. Yahweh, Rahab knows God's name. I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out, out of, up out of Egypt, and the Lord, uh, and excuse me, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Who are beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Remember, this is a military fortress. These soldiers are quaking in their boots. Or sandals or whatever reason. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Why? For the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh, by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you did not tell this business, if you do not tell, excuse me, this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, again, there's that confidence, not if, when the Lord does what he said, when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window, for for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. So fascinating story isn't it it's easy for us I think if, if this story is at all familiar to you to be desensitized to the shock and awe of what's going on here in this account after all we have the benefit of chronology on our side we can we're can look back with little or no tension on Rahab's life on this account of the conquest of Jericho because we know how the story goes I want you to think for a moment before we blaze onward about the human element of what we've just read. To the citizens of Jericho, what Rahab did was supremely unpatriotic. More than that, to to her own people, this was an act of treason, was it not? Rahab is a traitor. Rahab's like the Benedict Arnold of Jericho. But God calls what man would consider to be an act of high treason here in in Rahab's life, an act of faith. Kind of like what we saw in Moses' life last week. Rahab had some reckoning to do. She needed to weigh her options carefully to count the cost, and the stakes were high, were they not? When when, when Rahab was confronted with the power, with the truth, with the singularity of who Yahweh was, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, she had a choice to make, right? I mean, she could could either reject his sovereign power, his rulership, and double down on what she knew, on on what she loved, on her former allegiances, or, or Rahab could choose to do something absolutely radical. She could reject all her former allegiances. She could reject her former identity and line herself up behind the God of Israel regardless of the cost. And this is precisely, of course, what Rahab does. God, again, tells us in His Word that this act... This act to jettison all her, her former associations, her, her identity, her citizenship, if you will, to her homeland. He calls it an act of faith. And God holds out to us, as it were, Rahab as a shining example, as a model of what true biblical faith looks like. And I find that, Astounding that a woman of such immoral, sinned, stained background could become for us an example. She's in the hall of faith for crying out loud. Rahab, and her, her title is there. Rahab the prostitute. Please don't miss this. It was certainly not that Rahab was any better and all the other inhabitants of Jericho. It wasn't about how pure her life was, that that she was a better person than, than her neighbors or her friends. She's here in Hebrews 11 because she believed. She was confronted. Her life was intersected with the truth of who Yahweh was, the God of heaven and earth. She believed. And her belief in Yahweh changed everything about her. Everything about her. I like how Paul Washer, a modern day preacher, says it. He says, the true convert does not receive the gospel as an addition to his previous life, but in exchange for it. If you're here and you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, it's not because you sprinkled a little Christianity on your former life. It's because you exchanged your former life for a brand new one. You said no to your past, to your allegiances, to your former affections, and you said this thing about God, this gospel, this good news of Jesus the Christ is everything. And I'm going to line my life up behind this God who loved me enough to save me, to rescue me from sin and death. This is what it means to believe. And Rahab did precisely that. Notice how her belief just didn't stop with the intellectual realm. She didn't just make some kind of doctrinal statement only for Rahab. Her faith was put to action immediately. I mean, it needed to be, didn't it? She didn't have a whole lot of time on her hands. Faith in Yahweh meant action in the face of great danger, might I add. What would have happened if they found the soldiers there? What would have happened if Rahab was exposed? Certain certain death. This, this was treason. She puts... Her life on the line. She's been a follower of Yahweh for a sum total of what? Minutes? Days? Weeks? When she heard the report from the Red Sea? Years? I I, I don't know. She had no formal discipleship. Didn't sit p- beneath in a solid church, beneath teaching and preaching. She didn't have anybody putting her arm over her shoulder saying, hey, let's, let's follow Yahweh together. No, she had heard the account of who God was. And she acted. Now look back again at Hebrews chapter 11. We're using this as home base. Look back at this one. We got one verse on Rahab, verse 31. Because the author of Hebrews does something very interesting. He contrasts Rahab's act of welcoming the spies, he puts it into contrast with what he calls, the writer of the Hebrews, with the disobedience of those who perished, which kind of begs the question, what's obedience have to do with this? How were, stated differently, and I'll ask the question this way, how were the inhabitants of Jericho being disobedient, and how was, conversely, Rahab demonstrating obedience in her life? Well, I think it's pretty simple when you begin to break it down. They knew that the true and living God, Yahweh, was with Israel, and yet they, the inhabitants of Jericho, chose to oppose him, to oppose what he was doing with his people Israel. Let's go back to Rahab's words. She says in Joshua 2 verse 8, before the men of Israel laid out, she comes up to them and she has a conversation with these spies. Here's what she said. I know that Yahweh has given you the land. I know it. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. It's it's almost as if when we hear about Jericho, we we see the um, inhabitants of of the city scoffing. And and maybe they did in the moment as they were marching around the city. If you've watched the VeggieTales version of this, I want to encourage it. Just Right? I mean, it was preposterous, yes. But look at what Scripture says. Twice our hearts Melted like wax. Now they knew this was real. This ragtag bunch of Israelites, fueled on by Yahweh their God, had split the Red Sea, had conquered the heavyweights, Sihon and, and Og, whose bed was like, I don't know, some crazy Goliath height giants they were and somehow because of Yahweh they had devoted them to destruction they were coming like a freight train and here they were camped outside the walls Rahab says I've heard we've heard we know who this Yahweh is we know what he's done she says in verse 11 for the Lord for Yahweh your God he is God This is her profession of faith. He's God. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And what a proclamation. What a proclamation of the sovereignty of the one true God from a Gentile prostitute. Yahweh is God. He is the rock. I know none other. And James picks up on what happens here. You know, the, uh, the prostitute Rahab is featured in the letter of James, of James, the epistle of James. Perhaps some of you have heard of that famous statement that James makes that faith without works is dead. You heard that before? You know that that statement is attached to the account of Rahab. Let me read it to you. This is James' famous statement. From James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, James writes, In the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And then launching from Rahab's example, James says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, this is a big meaty subject. I'm going to resist the urge to to just go off the rails here. But, But what James is telling us is not that your obedience, that your actions, that your works alone can save you. What he's saying is that when you look at the life of God's people, true faith is a working faith. You can't obey your way to God. You can't work your way to God. But once God brings you to Himself by grace through faith in the Messiah, then your faith works. And you can't separate true belief, true belief with a heartbeat from actions that flow out from it. He says, just like Rahab, just like Rahab, heard about Yahweh and put her life on the line. So your big talk about God if it's not backed up with action is hollow. It's dead. Rahab is obedient because she hears that Almighty God is giving this land, her land, to his people. And she submits. She obeys. When everyone else in her city hears the same information, didn't they? Their hearts melted with the same news of what Yahweh was doing. Only their response is what? It's to disobey. It's to dig in their heels. It's to persist in what they had done before. It's to try to grasp what they saw as theirs. It's kind of like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Maybe you're familiar with these words. Jesus, the Messiah, says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Man, Rahab knew a thing or two about that, didn't she? About losing her life to to truly find it. When the inhabitants of Jericho are confronted with the reality of Yahweh, they double down, they dig in their heels, Rahab dies to her old way of life. She gives up her old way of life, all her old allegiances, and she turns her back on what she had had known in the past to follow a God that was not her own, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a God who has now become her own. And look at the eternal impact at the end of our time here, right before we get to baptism, a very important component of our service today. I want to point you to a little bit more information that we get about Rahab in another portion of Scripture. We read about her in, in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. We, we we read about her again here in Hebrews 11 and, and in James chapter 2, but Rahab is featured at least one other place prominently, although briefly, in scripture. If you've uh, ever read the opening pages of the New Testament, you find Rahab there as well, nestled, embedded in the middle of a of a genealogy, a big list of names. And when you begin to break down that genealogy, you find a little more to the story of Rahab and what God did with her life after that climactic moment when she threw away her old life and centered herself in Yahweh, in His ways. We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, that Rahab actually... Marries into the nation of Israel after the walls came down. After after she and her family were spared, and you, again you can read all about it in Joshua chapter six. Rahab apparently marries into the nation of Israel. Matthew one chapter five, and her husband is an Israelite, a guy by the name of Salmon, not Salmon. That'd be weird. Salmon and Rahab and Salmon have a little baby boy. want to know what his name was his name was Boaz did you know that I mean it's right here in the genealogy Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 maybe you've heard of Boaz before Boaz is the hero of the book of Ruth where another Gentile with a cloudy past with some baggage decides to follow Yahweh at great risk to her own life. Her husband dies and and, and, and she leaves the land of Moab and and she aligns herself with her mother-in-law. And in steps Boaz, son of Rahab the prostitute. After all, Boaz knew a thing or two about the salvation that God can work through the lives of messy people. Boaz was raised and nurtured by a former prostitute Gentile who had been knit into God's people and given a new heart, given a new identity. And so Boaz was able to look at this Gentile, this poor widowed Gentile, picking up the sheaves in his his field and see something in her that everybody else disregarded. Boaz got it because his life was a picture of how God saves messy people and transforms them for his glory. More on Boaz and Ruth some other day, Lord willing, but you know that the dots keep being connected. Here in the genealogy, we got this one little line in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. We we hear that, that Rahab marries Salmon, that she begets Boaz, her son, and eventually Rahab becomes get this the great great grandmother of King David. You kidding me? The prototype of all kings. The man after God's own heart comes from Rahab, the prostitute. And and friends, the whole reason why her name is even here in chapter 1. She's the mother of Boaz, yes. She's the great-great-grandmother of King David, yes. That's amazing. But the real kicker here in Matthew 1 is that Rahab's name is intentionally nestled by God the Savior, by God the Redeemer, by God the Restorer, in the ancestry, in the lineage of Jesus the King. Can you think of a higher honor than to be in the line of the Christ? Christ? this Gentile, this prostitute. And God says, I'm going to take your life. I see you, Rahab. And I'm going to take your life. and I'm going to make it into something new. I'm going to build a new identity with you, regardless of your past. And I'm going to make your life shine for my glory. Friend, don't you dare say, God can't. Don't you dare presume to say, God can't use this thing, this thing that I'm going through right now in my life, this thing that that marks my past that I look back on with shame. Your sin is not too great for God's grace. Not in Rahab's life, not in Paul's life, not in yours. Kind of reminds me of that verse, a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 9, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news for you and me. And then the Spirit pivots here through the pen of Paul and says, and such... Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swithers, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be justified. It's the only way to be washed in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Of our God. Such were. Past tense. Some of you. That's the truth isn't it? You're not here today. Because you're holier than your neighbors. You're not here today. Because you're smarter. Or in any way more special than them. If you're here today. And your feet are on the rock. Planted on the rock that is Jesus. It's because you were lost. And now you're found. It's because like Rahab, it's only a matter of degree, friends. Like Rahab, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God said to you, rebel, to you, deserving of sin, <laughs> You are filled with sin. Deserving of death, of hell, of eternal condemnation, God said to you, I love him. I love her. And no amount of sin can separate you from the love of Christ when you stand washed by the blood, sanctified by Jesus Christ. So Rahab, The prostitute is held out to you, friend, as an example of what faith looks like. Because she heard who Yahweh was. She forsook all that she had, all that she was. She believed and her faith was put to action. And God says, I'm going to use that. Father of Boaz, great mother of Boaz, great great grandmother of King David, in the line of your Savior. This is our story that faith works.